0: Today is May 29th, 2014, and my guest is Gregory Zuckerman, writer for The Wall Street Journal. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire wildcatters. Greg, welcome to Econ talk Hey, great to be here. So let's talk about the technology of fracking. Uh, what is it exactly and how does it work?
1: Sure. Fracking is just short for hydraulic fracturing. It's been... Going on since the 40s in, in different parts of the country, um, the world, but um, only in the last about uh, decade or so has it been really focused on shale. Shale is a type of rock that's key to this whole energy revolution, this renaissance of energy production in the United States. Shale is deep in the surface, down below, um, as much as 14,000 feet below. Uh, the surface and it's the source rock uh, in other words it's the source of all the oil and gas that historically has made its way over millions of years closer to the surface and we've always drilled down vertically like with a straw and looked for reservoirs of uh, oil and gas but we sort of ran out of that and hence the fear and worries um, in this country from the early 70s on about losing um, about being dependent countries that we weren't really friends with and didn't want to send all that money to. And there were issues, obviously, with the Arab uh, energy uh, oil boycott or embargo in the early 70s. And subsequently, ever since, we've just sort of been nervous about our dependence on others. But that's all changed because we finally figured out how to get lots of oil and gas from shale. And that's only happened uh, in the last few years. And that's the subject of my the frackers, and getting back to your specific question about fracking or hydraulic fracturing, it really just means pummeling this shale rock, sometimes it's other kinds of rock, limestone too, but usually it's shale, and pummeling it with a mixture of usually mostly water, but a little bit of sand and some chemicals too. And the whole goal is to um, create little fractures, little fissures in this rock that allow uh, oil and gas companies to um, drill and, and set free and produce uh, lots of oil and gas, so you create these little fractures by pummeling the rock um, with uh, this liquid concoction, uh, create the little fractures, and then you get the oil and gas to come through the well bore or the, the, the hole in the ground that you 've created and cemented and have steel casing around um, to get it back to the surface
0: it 's a huge amount of water right, so if there isn 't water nearby, they actually truck it in.
1: Yeah, so the average well is, uses about 5 million gallons of water, and usually it's fresh water. Not always, and they're trying to uh, work with other kinds of things, but usually it's still fresh water, and most of these places do not have that much fresh water nearby, so there are trucks and trucks and trucks. And f- for all the uh, worries about things like the chemicals getting into the water, the environmental issues, and there are some, they're overstated, but there's some, the, the bigger really issue for people in those neighborhoods, in those areas is the traffic that comes largely from these water trucks going back and forth, back and forth. It's not for forever. The The actual fracturing, the fracking um, doesn't take uh, especially a long time. Um, the whole process for a well is really three to five months, but the fracking part, what they call the stimulation, you're really stimulating the rock in, in in trying to get get oil and gas free that only takes one to uh one to seven days really but you know those one to seven days use up a lot gammas. of water yeah exactly <laughs>
0: uh the other part of the technology that's changed is this horizontal drilling so they figured out a way once they got to a productive piece of rock to go sideways right which is really unbe- miles below the surface it's kind of crazy. It's exactly right, so everyone focuses on fracking, and that's half of the reason we've had this
1: renaissance in the United States of energy production, but the other half is this technological innovation, a real breakthrough where we figured out as a nation how to drill down vertically and turn the drill bit 90 degrees, to curve it, to go horizontally. And the the reason why we do that is that these shale formations, these layers of shale rock, are really long and narrow and full of oil and gas, but the only way to get to it is by going horizontally. So when, when we figured that out, and honestly, it was, it was the government did a lot of work there. When it comes to fracking, it was mostly independent entrepreneurs. But when it came, when it comes to drilling horizontally, the government gets a lot of credit for that. The um, patents were from government employees and the government and the industry, and industry took advantage afterwards
0: the other role of the government is the um the surveying correct and and public uh publicizing some of these rock formations shapes and stuff like that is that right they do do that
1: but they often get it wrong <laughs> yeah. um they've un- understated the how much oil and gas we've got in these in these areas these formations time and time again i mean as recently as just a few years ago they were saying just not much up in the bakken in north dakota and it turns out we're getting now a million um, barrels a day from the bakken some say we might hit 2 million and that's of the 8.4 million we're producing
0: for the entire nation so the government does the estimates and they're often wrong i'm just thinking about the rock itself how how do how do we know what's down it's like a giant mri how, how, what's the technology if you know about it to figure out what rocks look like and where they are where, like where shale is
1: I know just a little bit about it because a lot of those advances were several years ago, but there's 3D mapping. There's all kinds of you – know, my book is – The Frackers is really a book about technology in a lot of ways and innovation and creativity, and the United States has really led the rest of the world, and yeah, they've got these fascinating ways to analyze um, formations that are a mile or, or more below the surface, and they can, can hit – they, they they joke about it, but they guys in the field say they can hit a specific spot a mile down below, like even a, as, as small as a tie pin. Um, so they've got they've
0: perfected those means to both analyze it and to drill. Yeah, I just want to say about the book. I, I and to the, to to my listeners, I I do try to read every book uh, that's the subject of an Econ talk episode. I don't always make every read every single word, but I often I I try to and I often do. This book, I did read every single word, and I. I enjoyed every single word. I could not put it down. It's a um, it's a ripping yarn. Actually, it's told in a breathless style that's very effective. And part of the charm of the book is the um, the characters, which is a, which is a big part of the book. We'll talk a little bit about them. But in the background, while all their adventures are going on and trying to be successful, uh, the other part that's going on is an incredible story of supply and demand. So we're going to try to get to a little of both of those. Today, let's talk a little bit uh, to get us started on that about natural gas. Generally, natural gas was kind of, I guess, oil was too initially. It was like, well, who cares? It's not important. So, give give us a thumbnail sketch of how natural gas evolved as as being important in the United States.
1: Yeah, natural gas was sort of the uh, ugly sister of oil for a long time, um, largely because there wasn't that much. Use for it was hard to transport it, and over time it became more popular. You can uh, there were pipelines built to transport it, and along the way demand grew. Uh, electricity power plants etc. Over years and, and especially recent years have shifted from coal. Coal was obviously a the key component for the power industry for a long time, and they've really shifted and. Um and natural gas demand has risen along the way um supply uh, thanks to this revolution has kept pace and even um topped it so hence the the glut that resulted in and the the drop in natural gas prices over the last few years it 's also a very domestic market, unlike crude so oil is easy to transport from one nation to another, so it's really priced in an international market. And all this oil coming from the United States has helped keep a lid on Nash, international prices, I would argue, but it really hasn't sent prices plummeting as, despite some predictions like that. And that's largely because, again, it's an international market because crude, the reason why it became so popular is it's so much easier to transport. You could put it on a tanker. It's just much easier. Whereas natural gas you have to uh turn into LNG, liquefied natural gas. You cool it and it's a whole process and it's an expensive process to do so. Then you have to uh then you ship it and then you um bring it back to you warm it up again to so you can turns back into natural gas. So it's become it's a much more domestic market. And that's why all this natural gas that's been produced in this country has created a glut and sent prices down, but it hasn't affected oil prices as much. Um, and and the price of the pump, you know, gasoline, hasn't been affected as much either, because that's also based on crude, which is international
0: market. And not just international, but big. So our share of it is relatively is small relative to, say, domestic production of natural of natural gas. As part of the U.S. natural gas market, so I have two interpretations of the price impact on on crude oil and then the pump. One is it's a smaller impact; it's a smaller amount. The second is maybe there is some uncertainty about regu- the regulatory environment and the absolute amounts uh, that that limit the impact on price. Because obviously, the price today affects is affected dramatically by the supply tomorrow. If people think that there's going to be a huge, enormous increase in the supply of crude oil, current holders of oil, which are uh, held in the ground and in actual literal inventories, have an incentive to sell it now when the price is high, and that brings the price down now well before the actual oil is pumped. So the fact that there's been a small impact on crude oil prices to me either means, one, the total effect of this shale oil revolution is relatively small or at least is thought to be small – or there's some uncertainty about whether the uh, people who own have access to it will, will be able to bring it out into the into the market. What's your reaction to that?
1: Those are good points. Is also the question is an open question of how long this resurgence will last. And there are skeptics who say shale wells are notorious, and they point out shale wells are notorious for having really impressive early years of production, and then it slows down. So. That they predict that's what will happen to this this surgence, resurgence of production. It will last a few years of an and then end. And I'm I'm not of that view. I'm more optimistic that it's going to last not forever. I don't know, uh, ten years or so, maybe longer. When it comes to oil and when it comes to nat- to natural gas, several generations. Maybe it won't be a hundred years, as President Obama and others have have said. But we should have several generations of of uh, ample natural gas. And and that's because when you talk to people in the field, they continue to innovate and they find different formations from a single drill pad and to all kinds of uh really impressive things that no one even considered a few years ago. So they are all aware there's no surprise to anybody in the in the industry that shale wells do drop off rather dramatically, but then they level off at a still pretty impressive level for a long time so that's their counter-argument yeah shale slows down but it doesn't um end the production doesn't end it plateaus at a decent level and we continue to find new formations new layers full of of lots of oil and gas in this country
0: well the two things i enjoyed most about the book were the characters and then the the background economics i mentioned uh, let's talk about the characters first. One of the things that strikes uh, the reader is the uh, incredible, um, uncertain, and risky nature of investment and entrepreneurship. Your book's a wonderful portrait of, of that risk. You have these people out there that they're borrowing and risking millions, sometimes billions of dollars, and they're really not sure how what's going to happen. A lot of people in your book are acting on what appears to be intuition. They persevere, and it turned out okay for many of them, not all of them, but many of them. And you think, are they just lucky or are they wise? Uh, probably a lot of both. So give us, uh, talk about the people, you, and you met a lot of them, talk about their character and, and their uh, their perseverance and their tendency to take risk.
1: Yeah, those are good points. I, I think I'm drawn to those themes. In my last book, I did, did a book uh, in 2009 called The Greatest Trade Ever, and it was about the people Betting that the financial crisis would would happen and trying to profit from it, and they go through lots and ups and downs along the way, angst, anxiety, um, euphoria. Eventually, some of them, some of them not. And the same thing here. I think I'm drawn to that theme where you have wildcatters, and it's not unlike a financial trade where you've got intuition, you've done your homework, you've done, you've you've had your experts take a look at it. But for every this, this stuff is way down below the surface. You know, a mile or more below the surface, it's hard to tell what's really going to happen down there. And every formation is different. Um, the geology changes rather quickly in this country and elsewhere, um, from one area to the next. And you can be riding high and, and doing really well, and all of a sudden the production slows, and you've got to convince. Your backers, investors, Wall Street um, investors, and, and others, to to support you. And the characters in my book, they all do have a, a lot in common. They're all really self confident, maybe over, overly so, um, and they they ignore the experts. And that's a key theme, I believe, to this book, The Frackers, but also to this era, the experts all got it wrong. And that was exactly what happened with the financial crisis. So just like Bernanke and Geithner and and Greenspan and all the heads of the banks all got it wrong, were caught flat-footed when it came to the financial crisis, the same thing happened here with the energy resurgence in our country. All the so-called experts didn't anticipate it. They gave up on America. Exxon yeah, Mobil.
0: Yeah, I mean, talk about uh, the big uh, players, but also talk about
1: the, the peak oil uh, experts. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there was an assumption until just a few years ago that peak oil was happening. In other words, that um, the, that production had peaked in the seventies and where would forever, forevermore, in this nation anyway, um, slow and drop. And it wasn't just kind of academics and, um, and ne- nervous Nelly type people it was a who's who who uh, agreed with this thesis and Exxon. So so and they also agreed that shale was full of oil and gas but there was no way we as a nation were going to be able to access it at least in an economic way so ExxonMobil and you think who should have led this revolution well ExxonMobil should have led this revolution not only were they the biggest and deepest pockets they Are in their headquarters in Irving, Texas, is literally, not even figuratively, literally on top of the Barnett Shale, which is the ground zero, the epicenter of this whole revolution. That's where it all began in Barnett, is in Texas. And again, Exxon's headquarters are on top of the Barnett. And yet, were they drilling there? No, they'd given up on America for all intents and purposes. They were drilling offshore in Africa and Asia. And they'd given up on their own backyard. And it was true of others I write about in the book too. So the the people that I write about, some make it, some don't. You could be too early just with the subprime trade. Some people were too early. Um, I write about some smaller wildcatters. And even some companies that were early, one called Oryx Energy, I write about. They were the first to really make a huge big bet on horizontal drilling. And they were ahead of the pack. And they should have been... Uh, on top of and of this revolution and le- leading the way, and yet they blew it for various different reasons um, I write about so for every billionaire wildcatter I write about, there are many more who just couldn't pull it off the one that got away or or a big big major who didn't see this thing coming.
0: And a lot of times these people are risking their own money, but part of the t- a lot of the time they're risking people's money that they've borrowed uh, and they're at risk at any moment and at many times they do go totally bankrupt. Because it doesn't pay off in time, or their borrowers lose faith and say it's over, we're pulling the plug, and the roller coaster ride of uh, unimaginable wealth and then not much uh, is really uh, dramatic in your book.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk just briefly about a guy named uh, Sherif Suki, who incredible is, character. <laughs> he's an interesting guy. He's an immigrant from Lebanon. Um, and there are a lot of immigrants in my book. It's a very American book. A lot of older people finally get it right and hit their home run late in life and show resilience. And again, Suki immigrated to America from Lebanon and was an investment banker. Made some money when he retired and went skiing in Aspen for a few years and kind of blew it all. Went through a divorce or two and decided to do a restaurant tour and and, and, uh, owned some bars, but that wasn't really working out. And he decided to go look for oil and gas and. And he didn't find that much, but he did realize that we as a nation were running out of natural gas. That's what all the experts said. So he started a company called Chenier Energy to import uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, into this country. And they built these huge terminals They borrowed billions, tens of billions of dollars to do it. The terminals in Louisiana and things were looking good and he was worth about $200 million by around 2007 or so, and then it dawned on his investors and the market and and the world that the United States was producing huge amounts of gas from shale and they don't need to import it so his at whole, all it's
0: not like he's not going to get as much capacity filled up as he thought he might it's like well i rolled the dice and it's <laughs> over right he couldn't <laughs> right he, he could have been
1: more wrong and i give him credit he could have thrown in the towel and said i was completely wrong this con- this country does not need to import gas after all and instead he said i'm going to come up with some new idea and his investors kept badgering him and these are who's who on Wall Street Blackstone and John Paulson and they because they, they had put money in this scheme of his, this idea that we needed to import gas. And they kept saying, Sharif, what are you going to do? Sharif, what are you going to do? And Sharif had no clue. But then he, he finally realized that, wait, hold on a second. If we're really going to have that much natural gas produced in this nation, and there's going to be a glut, maybe instead of importing gas, my company should export it. So he went back to his investors and said, uh, you know, that whole thing I sold you on, that whole scheme, that whole idea of importing gas, well, it was completely and utterly wrong. Could' have been more wrong, so instead i'd like to export it, and you know it speaks to your point of good fortune in some ways he had good fortune because he his stock was a dollar a share, his investors had written him off in his company they'd given up on the whole idea they said, Sharif, good luck, we've written this off anyway to zero if you could figure something out. Um, Good luck to you. More power to you. And he became the first person to convince the government to give him an export license. He convinced other lenders to lend him still more billions and billions of dollars to refit these terminals in Louisiana so they could export natural gas. And they're going to be the first ones starting the end of 2015 to export huge amounts of natural gas, liquefied natural gas, from America, from the lower states to uh, abroad, and he, today he's worth about three hundred fifty million dollars. And he really was was uh, was um, done just a few years ago, and had really nothing to nothing left of his fortune.
0: Yeah, he really had an easy sell. All, all he did is say, "Take that, you know those business plans." I I told you, <laughs> I said, "Just put a minus sign in front of everything." yeah. Just, it's, it's yeah really turn it around. That's right. Exactly. Gonna, yeah. Instead of the boats coming in, they're going to go out. It's not you know, but he did have that asset. He had the land, and he had a place where the relevant kind of uh, transport boat could ship could could carry and and land there,
1: and that's exactly right. So he had some advantages, but he also isn't wasn't a, wasn't any kind of uh, major player in the energy world, and didn't have a good reputation at that time. So, but I give him a lot of credit. A lot of these characters in my book are really resilient and creative.
0: Yeah, they're as you said, they're also very overconfident uh, or confidently self-confident. Um, yeah. I didn't realize how wealthy and uh, large these companies and their CEOs got in this very brief window in this place when the whole market went crazy. That's
1: exactly right. The I didn't either. Um, but part of the reason I did this book is because there hadn't been enough focus on them. So there's a guy named Harold Hamm. I can talk about him for a few minutes if you'd like. A real rags-to-riches story. Yeah, so, so Harold Hamm is one of the key characters in this whole era. And not many people... Know him. He was born dirt poor, a little town in Oklahoma. He was so poor, his uh, his parents were sharecroppers, picking cotton and um, and watermelon in the fields of Oklahoma and Texas. And he, Harold, had to. Uh, he was the 13th of 13 children. He and his siblings had to help their parents in the fields, um, picking, and they couldn't really go to school till around Christmas time each year. That's when their school year began, because only then was it so cold that he was no longer ha- uh, needed to help his parents in the fields. He didn't go to college, um, but he had this hunger to find oil. And you still meet these people when you travel the countries. You, you you meet these. It's like an American archetype where you they hunger. They're wildcatters. They want to find a lot of oil.
0: And it's an yeah, archetype don't. most of us don't run into very much. Hanging yeah. out on the coasts. It's an interesting type phenomenon. You know, taking a step back,
1: this whole theme, this whole era, you really need to travel the country to appreciate. So when I'm on on the East Coast, my wife's from Los Angeles. We spend a lot of time on those coasts. People have no clue on the two coasts how important this revolution is. To me, it's the biggest business story in America, when you start traveling places like Pennsylvania and Ohio and North Dakota and Oklahoma and Texas and Louisiana like I did, you see the impact. You see the jobs and small towns in this country getting a rebirth and, and companies moving, reshoring back to this country to take advantage of lower natural gas prices. But uh, your, your point is a good one. You don't really have a sense of that uh, on the coast, and you don't have a sense of, of people like Harold Hamm who live and breathe and, and hope it – all, it's all about finding oil and it's for two reasons. It's to get really, really rich. And it's also, believe it or not, to change the country. And it sounds sort of corny, but I talked to people that dealt with ham uh, decades ago and he was talking about American get can become energy self-sufficient way back when. So a lot of these people, it's very, um, 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 it's a, it's a mix of, of, of reasons why they pursue this, both to, fulfill some dream and change the country and then to get really wealthy. And again, and Carol Ham was, was dirt poor his whole life growing up. So he he wanted to get rich and he, he thought he'd do it through oil, but he didn't go to school, college, didn't know anything about engineering or geology. So he um, started by doing other things. He, he cleaned out tankers, literally climbed in with a long broom and, and rake and and. and and clean the muck out of the bottom of tankers. That was one job he started doing, and started a company to do that. He did water transportation. But he saved his money, and, and, and he learned a little geology on the side, and he picked the brains of veterans in the business, and he started drilling for oil in Oklahoma, and did pretty well. And then he heard about the promise of oil and gas up north in Montana and North Dakota, and he headed up there with this company called Continental Resources, and they were the biggest. Uh, they leased more land than anybody else in the Bakken area in North Dakota, and for several years, for a number of years, it really just didn't work. He was among the first, his company, not the first, there's a a business lesson there, being a, a fast follower. They were among the first to combine hydraulic fracturing with horizontal drilling, and they were making some progress, but it really wasn't enough, and by around 2006 or so, they were about to really give up because, Um, It was expensive drilling, and they were running out of money, so what they decided to do was try to sell half their acreage in North Dakota, and no one wanted it. The big giants didn't want it, mid-sized people, smaller people, nobody wanted their acreage, so all they could do was keep going but at a really much slower pace, and they did do that, and they kept working on it, innovating And they finally figured, they went public in 2007, and they finally figured out how to get lots and lots of oil out of this. Really up there, it's more limestone and other kinds of rock, but challenging American rock. And it exploded. And today, the whole Bakken area produces about a million barrels a day of oil. That's of the 8.4 in this entire nation. And Ham's company is the biggest leaseholder. So today, this guy who grew up um, with no money at all, a little shack of a home, that I, I I visited, and he couldn't even go to school uh, each year on time. Today he's worth 17 billion dollars. He's one of the richest men in America. He's worth more than the estate of Steve Jobs. He's worth more, more than Rupert Murdoch, Sumner Redstone, all kinds of people. And yeah, he's not a household name, uh, as you first said. And he's, he's so wealthy that he's going through a, a divorce right now, unfortunately, but his wife is gonna walk away with more money than Oprah Winfrey.
0: So it's a
1: real American Rex to riches story.
0: And the part that – and the part that I, I mentioned this earlier is that so many times in the book you think you're watching this guy you're, and years are going by. It's not like, oh, they drilled and it didn't work out. Okay, go home. They they drill and they drill and they drill and they try something new and they don't give up. The perseverance is so incredible. And you know most of us would just go, well, this was a bad idea, but they – Persevered. And, of course, there are many people who persevere, and it is a bad idea, and you don't read about them. You read about, right. There's a big selection selection bias here. But it's fascinating how this faith or intuition or blindness or confidence, whatever you call it, sometimes pays off in such – just an incredible way. I want to turn to back to natural gas. Ham is oil, correct, that that you're talking about? Oh, about yes, crude oil. Also, yes, so, yeah, it is oil, yeah. So just to give people – I'm looking at the uh, data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration – uh, give people an idea of the magnitude. In 2005, uh, the United States produced 18 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. 18 trillion. Sounds like a lot. Of course, it's hard to know. Uh, but, but what's important is that in 2012, which is two years ago, it was up to 25. It's a 40% increase in seven years. That's just, it, just unbelievable. And of course, what that does – The part – try to talk about this because it's such an interesting uh, part of the economics. So you're in a world where gas – for a while, before this revolution, while it's in process, the price of natural gas is rising. Everybody thinks we're running out of natural gas. So they're making investments that make sense in a world where gas is expensive. They're buying up land. They're investing in techniques of drilling. They're hauling water to dig wells – to drill wells because gas is really expensive and it's worth it. And then all of a sudden – As all these people are doing it, in response to that high price, the supply becomes – very the quantity supplied, as we say in economics, all of a sudden becomes enormous and the price just goes through the floor. And all of a sudden, all the users of gas now are benefiting from all the investments that these people made so confident that they were going to make enormous sums of money and ended up mainly benefiting the people who use the gas.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. There is an interesting element in this whole era in that there are billionaires that have been created, some of whom I've talked about and I write about in my book, but others were really early and they were right uh, about their prediction that we can get a lot of natural gas from this country and they figured out how to do it people like Aubrey McClendon who started Chesapeake Energy but in the end they created a glut and this is a commodity and they forgot that and they forgot that how easy it, if for them it became much easier to produce natural gas and not only for them but for their competitors too and you know not, some were faster than others at shifting So there's a guy there's a company called EOG Energy which um which um, Mark Papa ran, and in 2007, they were doing a good job finding natural gas from shale for the first time, like Aubrey McClendon at Chesapeake, and like a lot of their competitors, and everybody EOG was was thrilled, and they were high-fiving each other, and Papa one day Said to himself, Well, hold on a second. If we're finding all this gas from shale, won't everybody else also find it much easier? And won't that create a glut? And won't that collapse prices? And he got really scared and got nervous. And he said, Guys, w- we have to find oil because, again, oil is priced on the international market or, or we're done. And right under the noses of the majors, the big oil and gas companies in Texas, Papa and EOG leased up huge um, swaths of land. In an area called the Eagleford. It's a formation, a field, about an hour, hour and a half from San Antonio. And sometimes they couldn't even test the well. They had to go so quickly. They felt so much pressure to get this land because they thought they weren't sure. They thought there'd be a lot of oil there in the shale there. And they were exactly right. And today EOG is worth about $50 billion. Again, one of these companies and names that most people have never heard of, but they're bigger than, um, Hershey, um, um, alcoa southwest airlines combined so they and and they did it they did by under the noses of of the big companies by realizing
0: that natural gas prices were going to collapse due to this oversupply and that's going to persist for quite a while it looks like we're going to have very inexpensive natural gas in the united states for a long long time uh and I, i it's tell me if i'm getting this this right the economics you were talking how the, the actual fracturing process doesn't take very long, but it is expensive, right, to haul five million gallons of water around and to do all the research and all the trial and error and there's all the failures is very expensive. But once they've kind of figured out that, say, this particular shale formation is productive and they've already done some of that initial work – the supply is just going to – it's still going to be worth it to tap it. It's still going to be worth it to suck from that straw. And so the supply is going to, despite the low price, continue for a long time. Is that a correct summary?
1: You could make that argument. Um, yes, it is it's it is expensive. The whole process about three to five months to drill a well, including the fracking, which takes a few days. But there's all kinds of other kind of uh, drilling and, and other issues. Um, and if you're in – in the oil, going for oil, you really need oil prices to be about 60 or $70 a barrel. So that's sort of a floor in some ways, and below that, they probably won't get so much production, but I don't think we're going down to 60 anytime, anytime soon. But yeah, when it comes to natural gas, uh, you've made that initial investment, you can keep pumping it. It's also the case that some of these leases sort of demand that you keep pumping it or you lose the lease, and they've already spent money up front in terms of production, but also in in the lease agreement, so they don't want to lose those leases, so so that resulted sometimes in um, some overproduction as well. Um, I'm not sure that's going to necessarily mean a hundred years of natural gas in this country, but there are new areas these guys keep finding, new formations, new layers in the ground, full of oil and gas, which is pretty interesting.
0: And of course they found it all over the world, uh, you point out toward the end of the book some of the problems that the rest of the world has in tapping their natural gas relative to the is the United States uh, regulatory differences, uh, culture, access to to financing, etc. But presumably, it's there are shale, we're not the only uh, nation that has shale under our borders. Yeah, I originally thought that the my book, the first chapter, as it
1: were, would be America, then the rest of the world mm. would be would be later. And because Argentina, Mexico, Russia, China, the UK, Poland, they all have deep shale formations full of oil and gas. The problem is. They lack lack some things that we have in our country, some that are God-given and some that aren't. And it's going to take a while for them to catch up. So we've got more access to fresh water than other countries. Our shale formations aren't as deep as some places like China. We've got a pipeline system. We've got capital markets, and we've got an entrepreneurial spirit where – you can make a mistake in this country and you're encouraged to make mistakes and you're not so much in other places. And we also own our own land rights, our mineral rights under our homes and our farms and our properties in our nation and you don't in almost every other country. So I was over in England to talk about my book and you can make a real strong argument why they should be fracking and because There, the North Sea is running out and they're importing our dirty coal. We are, I I was confounded by this, but we're literally selling coal to Newcastle um, because they need our energy and we don't need coal as much as we used to. We're shifting to natural gas because of the the shale revolution. So um, you can make an argument why England should be fracking, but then you get to like the countryside and somewhere beautiful where they have natural gas or oil down below and it's hard to make an argument to an individual that they should be supportive of fracking in their backyard when they're not being compensated where they are in America. Here in America, you go the a landman representing an energy company has to go door to door and cut a deal with a landowner and they get they get a nice sum of, of money and it's has kept a lot of people in their farms and it's given people new lives but um so they're being compensated for the for it's an industrial, for, for the, for what they have to go through. And it's an industrial endeavor. It's noisy, smelly. Um, there's a lot of traffic um, that results. So you need to be compensated and you can be so in America. Whereas other places, like I said, in the United Kingdom, the crown owns the mineral rights below people's property. So it's much, much, it's an advantage that we've got in this country.
0: Yeah. And we're going to talk about the environmental issues in the last, um, part of the conversation, but I do want to emphasize at this point, I'm going to read a quote from the book, which I love. The successes of the architects of the shale era are attributable to creativity, bravado, and a strong desire to get really wealthy. And we do allow that still, uh, not not so eagerly sometimes in the United States, but um, it's still a huge part of our culture that it's okay to get rich. And as you say, we still have some private property and we still let people use their land the way they want, sort of, kind of. And um, that, that does make a big difference.
1: Yeah, very much so. These wildcatters need that incentive. It's it's a risk they take. Every time they drill down below, they've got to get backers. It's, it's a challenge. So, yeah, we in this country, there's still that entrepreneurial spirit where you can roll the dice and be creative and try to get really rich. And lose all your money
0: sometimes, <laughs> which, which is also to- what happens.
1: Yes. Yes,
0: uh, and then and
1: then start all over again after yep. you've lost it all, and, and and if you've got a good idea, I mean, look at Aubrey McClendon. Um, I write about him. He's a key part of my book. He's had uh, his whole career is about rising and falling, rising and falling, collapsing, and. Being aggressive, and and he's been able to restart his career once again after after getting kicked out, getting fired from Chesapeake Energy, which is a company he started, and they became the second largest natural gas producer in this whole country. He got kicked out for various reasons, I, I write about it in my book, and he's restarting once again.
0: Yeah. No, it's an amazing thing. And there are no thank goodness, there are no bailouts uh when you lose your money in this industry, unlike say the financial sector. That's true. It's great. It's um <laughs> it is a very in that way sense, it is a very American story, at least the old America that uh, some yeah. of us uh some of us like. L- let's talk about some of the environmental issues because it's really um it's really rather extraordinary. I think I have the numbers right. Uh, carbon dioxide, CO two emissions in the United States are down Thirteen uh, percent uh, in the last in 2007 to 2012. That's an enormous decrease. That uh, you know, if it had been legislated, and a lot of people wanted to legislate it in the name of of reducing uh, global warming, a lot of people wanted to f- force U.S. carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions down. It's happened naturally through this discovery, and yet um, the environmentalists that I talked to, and I, I just had dinner with with some folks the other night, that they, they really don't like fracking. Uh, so talk about and, and that reduction in carbon dioxide, I think, is mainly a result of switching from coal to natural gas. natural gas prices have fallen in reaction to the shell revolution. So talk about the environmental story there and what people are worried about and what, your perception of, of whether they 're right or wrong
1: sure first i 'll talk about all the reasons why environmentalists should love fracking in this whole era, and then i 'll talk about some of the concerns the real concerns i have i 'm very much a centrist so i 've Gotten a lot of flack from both sides. Um, yes, our carbon dioxide emissions have dropped to 1994 levels, and that's because at the margin we're shifting from coal production to natural gas because we're, we're finding so much gas from fracking and in, and in, in shale. And yeah, I was in England, and you know everyone in Europe. Thinks they're big environmentalists and they laughed at us because we didn't sign the Kyoto agreement. Well, we're compliant with Kyoto now, not that we ever signed it, but because of this revolution. So that helps. And if you believe, if you're worried about global warming, you really got to be a huge fan of fracking. Why is that? Because the only way we can make any dent into global warming is nothing, nothing in Europe. They can't do anything about it. And, and we, we can't either. We've got to get China to stop being so reliant on coal. And the only way they're going to be stopped relying on so much on coal is if they start fracking and they, they start shifting over to natural gas. So if you're an environmentalist, you really got to be rooting for fracking, believe it or not. And, um, my, my view is that. The biggest concerns people have are overstated. The chemicals are unlikely to ever get into the water system. When you talk to scientists, as I have, and that's largely because we're drilling so far below the surface, as much as 14,000 feet below, and the water um, is about 400 feet below. So miraculously, could the chemicals somehow move up so high through the rock into the water? It's possible, scientists say, but it's really, really unlikely. And the other things or other concerns are overstated too, things like uh, when you turn on the faucet and you light a match, we've seen those movies, and there's a fireball. Well, that does happen, and that's from methane getting into the water. The only problem is that's always happened in this country. It's nothing to do with fracking. There are three towns in this country named Burning Springs. <laughs> um, the Native Americans used to light the fire, uh, water on fire. I, I met an old timer in Dimmick, which is Ground Zero for the protest. She said, "Craig, I used to go to school early, turn on the faucet, and light a match, and uh, for kicks." So it just happens to be that there's some parts of this country where methane naturally gets into the water, nothing to do with fracking. And and so so I'm I'm not as concerned about those those issues as environmentalists. I do think that oil and gas companies make way too many mistakes. So there's nothing inherent in fracking. That makes it dangerous, but they make mistakes all the time, and the casing often is compromised, the casing around the well, and that's when methane or chemicals can get into the water. So again, you, you can do it properly, but there need to be better regulations. There's some recently in some states about some of these issues like um, Wyoming and and Colorado has a great new law in which oil and gas companies have come together with one environmental group, EDF, in, in the state to introduce a law to – to produce a law where um, they're not emitting as much methane. And methane is a greenhouse gas and a dangerous one. So, and there's leakages all the time. So they they can clamp down. The country can clamp down on this stuff. So my whole view is instead of condemning the frackers, they're not going away. We're not going to somehow magically um, turn this clock back. And, and we're sitting on some of the deepest gas Reserves in the world to expect the nation still digging out of the deepest economic downturn since the depression to say yeah we 've got all this gas, but instead of using it and enjoying the, 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 the this bounty we 're going to keep sending all this money to countries we really don 't like it 's just too much to ask so we 're going to keep producing we 're going to keep fracking let 's put pr- pressure on the oil and gas companies to reduce the mistakes and to do a better job of it rather than just condemning them and hoping they go away and
0: saying fracking poisons. And you point out in the book that, that of course, there's variation in how careful people are. And I would point out there's variation in the incentive. People have to be careful. Besides just complying with regulations, a company doesn't benefit from having an, an embarrassing incident or harmful incident, a spill or some kind of problem. And the more established firms, of course, have more at stake, and they're going to be more careful, whereas some of the newer firms that haven't made their name or made their money are more likely to push the envelope. And those are the ones where uh, we'd expect there to be more problems. That's true, and I also should make the point that a lot
1: of the problems, a lot of the mistakes were early on when companies, often smaller companies, just weren't as familiar with the geology as they could have been. And they'll they'll own up to it. They'll admit it. There's a company called Cabot Oil, uh, which is in Pennsylvania, and got – and made huge mistakes and people's water was ruined and there were, there were, there were homes and, and farms were impacted. And it's because they, they didn't understand the geology as well as they should have early on. We're talking 2007 kind of period. And um, they've improved and they've learned their lessons and they do a better job with the community around them and they have much better relations. And some of the the, the mistakes are still being, being focused on um, by critics But they have done a much better job. They're not faultless, uh, but they've done a much better job They and other oil and gas companies in the last uh, couple of years.
0: As you mentioned earlier, the fracking process combines water with lots of other stuff, sand, chemicals. Some of that stuff is toxic that's added. And uh, companies are not thrilled with talking about what they put in that mix because they want to preserve any competitive advantage they have. They also might be worried about how they're perceived by the public. Uh, What do you think of a requirement to be open about what you put into your mix?
1: I think oil and gas companies should uh, share with us. I get their argument. Their argument is that this is our secret sauce. They say, Greg, we've spent years working on it, trying to get the right fracking concoction together, the right mix of chemicals. But uh so we don't want to give it up. But the public really is concerned and they do this thing where they share most or some of the chemicals right now with some states or most states, but and they and with the industry there's a frack focus thing, but they need to share more of it and there's no really reason why at this point they should they shouldn't.
0: When we think about toxic things, uh, I don't know what the nature of those are. Of course, there are many toxic things 14,000 feet below the Earth's surface already. So injecting them down there doesn't, and they're very far away from us. So I, again, I, to me, partly doesn't it come back to this issue of what's the likelihood it's going to affect me, especially if I'm the landowner, right? If I want to take that risk, are there spillover issues that we should be worrying about where, you know, it's one thing for my water supply to be damaged, but if I'm damaging yours, In the process of making a lot of money, then I should take, we should incentivize people to take that into account. Um, what's the real risk of toxic stuff here? Well, it's
1: not just the locals. It could be, uh, he gets to the, the area of water supply, there are pipelines involved, potentially bursting of pipelines. The, the concern I would have is that the um, integrity of the wells sometimes is compromised. I've seen different data, but sometimes they have to go in as much as maybe one in 10, one in 15 wells, and you've got to uh, remediate those. the structure of the wells. And they've got casing around them, cement and and steel, but sometimes companies don't do a good job. And again, rather than saying, aha, sometimes chemicals do get into the water from Cracks and, and holes or mistakes in the, in the casing, and therefore we're going to stop fracking. I would rather there be better regulation, and companies can do a better job of, uh, being, of making sure the integrity of the wells uh, is 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 uh, according to regulation. There are there's, there's there's some states that are starting to do that, but there should be everywhere. So um, it can be done safely fracking. It's not to say that it is,
0: but it's never 100. percent I mean, I think part of the lesson of when you think about the incredible initiative and creativity this is and represents. Things go wrong. It's inevitable. There are going to be spills, just like we we know in anything like this. And it's part of the price of having an industrial, civilized, modern life. Uh, It depends on the magnitude, of course. right? And as you point out, there are ways to make the probability smaller that bad things will happen. But um, like you say, when you're digging deep in the ground and then transporting it around, things are going to happen.
1: That's exactly right. Listen, we had the huge BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and I don't hear anybody saying that as a result there shouldn't be any drilling for oil, and we all like to drive our cars still. Um, and I don't know, you go to, you, you get in your car and there's a possibility there would be an accident. You go, you, you know, you have surgery. There's always a possibility if something goes wrong. There's always going to be some possibility, it's industrial activity, uh, some possibility of something going wrong when it comes to fracking and producing oil and natural gas in the
0: United States. The key is to, to reduce the, as you said, reduce those the possibilities. Assuming that they can be reduced to a probability that we would in some dimension, we. I'm not sure who we are here, but that people would be comfortable with. Um, I want to go back to this environmental issue, though, uh, more generally, which I'll give you my take and see if you've encountered this in your conversations with environmentalists. I'm sure you've had plenty, especially since the book came out, because you do mention a number of the environmental issues, but the book is a celebration of this human achievement uh, to a large extent. Uh, I'm on that side. I like the incredible... Achievement of it—the idea that we could drill two, three miles below the Earth's surface and um, and do something productive—is mind-boggling, and it's that it works at all is incredible. But I assume a lot of this is religious, in in the following sense: I assume a lot of people don't like fracking because we just don't have the right to break up Mother Earth this way. You know, these rocks down there—you're you're smashing them, you're sucking out this this oil and natural gas, and the right attitude is just to leave the earth the way it was uh you say we all like to drive our cars well a lot of people don't like that whole idea the whole idea that we that we need to pull resources out of the ground to be able to sustain our lifestyle they want a simpler lifestyle uh they want more bicycles they want more walking they want less i always call it civilization they want more pristinity pristine how they define that, which era they use, whether it's pre-American, Native American, or after. Uh, there's a lot of romance to me, which is a fundamentally religious character about tampering with the earth. Did you Do you encounter that? Do you think I'm right? I
1: think there are some of those people. I'm not sure I would call it religious because the, they tend not to be very <laughs> religious. Um, those, uh, this is their religion. It's their religion. Maybe that is earlier. You're right. And not in the in, in the sense that maybe we're thinking or I was thinking. Um there are environmentalists I give a lot of credit to, and there are a lot of people concerned about this era who I I respect. And their view is that if you look back in history at the energy and industry broadly, there have been a lot of examples where they have left um the their their um the fields that they produced. The mines, coal especially, in terrible states after they've sucked all the natural resources out of the ground. And they've pulled up, they've moved on to the next town or back home, and people have suffered in those areas. And there have been also booms and bust areas and places in this country when it comes to oil and gas where it hasn't looked especially pretty after the rigs of of, of been, been collapsed and gone home, and 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 the, and the wild have gone home. So I understand that concern, um, and a lot of people just have suspicion A lot of people also just don't have a suspicion of big business yeah, and true. and oil and gas companies. You know, I had this view, this initial view when I started doing the work. That who are these guys? You know, they're, they're Houston boardroom types and double rested suits and the cigars chomping, and they're spilling left and right and giggling along the way. But then when you, you, you I I had the privilege of traveling the country and talking to people. And when you talk to them, the engineers, the geologists, they're they're not uh, calloused in the environment. A lot of these people – are ranchers, they, the jowlers They like rock. They're outside. They're hunting. They're fishing. I'm sitting at my desk most of the day. You know, I, you know, they're outdoors more than I am. So, I'm not saying they're angels. They often make mistakes, but they're not bad people looking to pollute. They just need some more regulation sometimes. But um, I think there's this image of oil and gas people that is a horrible image, and partly. Uh, because people don't want to think. They like to fill up it and turn on their air conditioning and use their heat in their home. They don't want to think where it, it comes from. But, it's, like you know, it's, the, it's like
0: chicken.
1: It's like chicken. The only chicken, I guess. Yes, <laughs> chicken yeah. Chicken
0: is this thing in a plastic wrap that's kind of soft to the touch and chilly when you touch it because it's been in the <laughs> fridge. And it, it comes from the produce that comes from the meat department of the grocery. That's where chicken comes from. And 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 oil and gasoline comes from that pump at the corner where that nice person works who takes your money.
1: Right, right. So like the worst criticism of, criticisms I've had of my book have been from the left and I've been told I need to do penance for what I've done and uh, New York Times See? religion wrote. <laughs> uh, New York Times wrote two reviews. One was pretty good, and the other one really
0: condemned me. Yeah, and not so good. I read that one. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and they had problems with everything try. from
0: not enough women in my
1: book. Yeah, you know, so so I hard. think there yeah. either. And, and I listen. I look for as a writer, you want to. I know uh, you found a characters. couple. There's a few in there, but it's hard. The way yeah. it is. Um So I do think that there is a view from the left that. If it's oil and gas, then it's got to be bad. And the people doing it are bad. And God forbid you should write something about the risk takers who have changed the country and helped move us towards energy independence. But, you know, that's okay. I can take it.
0: Uh, let's let's close talking about technology a little bit. Um, the changes in human capability that this represents – Forget forget the – Idea that just to use natural gas at all in a productive way is really an extraordinary <laughs> achievement, uh, right? It just—it's a wild concept that you could do yeah. something with this stuff, yeah. right? Or or crude oil, which is yeah. which for years was uh, considered just a, a bad thing to have on your land because it's yucky and gross and mm-hmm. it's it's not worth anything. Um, the ultimate resource, as we like to say on this program, it's a phrase that comes from uh, Julian Simon is is human is the human cre- is human creativity and. This, as you point out many times in the book, this revolution was, it's so un, uh, was so unanticipated that five years ago they weren't ready for it. It's not like, well, 100 years ago people thought X. Yeah. Five, seven years ago people were sure of, and technology changed that perception. What – are there some dreamers out there right now who have crazier ideas that you encounter that might be coming next?
1: In this industry or elsewhere?
0: Either one. I'll, I meant this industry, but I'm, I'm anxious to hear about anything.
1: Yeah, uh, sure. So I was really reassured about our nation um, from doing this book and our nation's future and the creativity and innovation. I mean, our we get criticized left and right by academics and experts for for falling behind and not innovating anymore. And I can go through a whole list of well-respected authors and 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 experts who've kind of made that accusation. And then you get out in the fields and you see they're doing things like, again, with a drill, single drilling pad, they're going various formations down below the surface and they're doing much better job of, of recycling, and I just came back from a conference, and I talked to a couple people, and and they think that in the next few years we're going to recycle as much as 40% of the of the liquid that comes back up in the water, which is really amazing. Right now it's maybe I don't know 5%, um, and um, there are all kinds of breakthroughs that happen left and right, and it's Americans taking risks and that and, are and responsible for it. And the rest of the world is playing catch up, and the rest of the world is in awe when you speak to somebody from Germany. As a, Uh, they they produce things really well efficiently, but when it comes to the creativity that we've got in this country, and it's not just this industry, it's elsewhere as well. So I'm very excited about a lot of things going on. There's um, immunotherapy treatments when it comes to cancer that are just a game changer. And I'm just starting to learn about it and thinking about writing about it myself. And it's fascinating stuff going on. And it's American doctors, people in Texas, MD Anderson, other places, and we're talking about great, great game-changing therapies for things like melanoma and other kinds of cancers. So this country, in some ways, I was very reassured about it. In other ways, I was a little bit discouraged because we're so split um, about almost every kind of topic, uh, gun control, everything, and fracking. you know, There aren't enough centrists anymore. It's a a lonely place to be where you can see, where you can try to work with people on both sides and trying to make some accommodation.
0: When you think about innovation, um, I don't know much about natural gas, what, what what's done with it in this country, but I, I assume as the price falls and stays low, if we're right about this future for a while, and I have to say, when you said a minute ago, a few minutes ago, that you didn't see oil falling below $60 a barrel anytime soon, I, wanted to, I had the thought, well, who knows? Uh, the world's a complicated place. One of the things I learned from your book is just how complicated it is but when I think about natural gas, what is the potential? Have you talked to anybody about the potential for using natural gas more widely than its current set of uses? Are there people – can you power a car with natural gas? Um, and what's the potential for that?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My book is really about the supply of oil and gas. But there's a whole another discussion to have. About the demand, as you had suggested. And it's twofold. It's both maybe new uses for things like natural gas, and yeah, the buses in New York City, and people talk about trucks. If you just get the truck fleet in this country um, switched over, then you save a lot in terms of crude and, and sustain more sustain, eventually, we'll have more sustainable. Um, energy sources, things like, um, um, solar and wind, which I'm excited about longer term. I think this buys us time and they're not competitive right now, but there are smart guys on Wall Street. I talk to all the time working on that and things like the, um, uh, batteries, uh, because, you know, intermittent issue is, is really crucial for both of those. But, the, but if you've got better batteries and you can store, uh, energy, that, that'll help. But when it comes to demand, there's a whole other world about, um, of changes ahead of us. There's um, self-driving cars. There are people increasingly want to live in cities and not in suburbia. That's going to reduce demand for for oil. And that really could send you – you can see that globally potentially. Some of these changes, you could see more supply coming eventually from China and demand slowly but surely dropping potentially. You could see oil uh, collapsing. It's very difficult to
0: predict. I agree. Yeah, and if you look at um, at energy use in the United States per dollar of GDP, it's um – falling steadily. And yes. my thought is um, my vision of the future, which um, you know sounds like uh, uh, science fiction, but I have a feeling it'll happen in my lifetime, uh, not just my kids' lifetime, is you know, driverless cars, driverless trucks uh, getting incredibly better. I don't know what's going to power them, but they're going to have better mileage because they're not going to be people stuck stop and go in traffic and Driving inefficiently, it's going to be enormous improvements just from that one thing alone. Of course, we have to. It's going to to be jobs for the people who are currently driving cars, um, uh, taxis, and and trucks. Those those folks, I think, are going to have trouble finding work uh, in their current skills. Uh, They're going to need to find something else to do. But in terms of energy use, uh, again, your book is a fabulous portrait of how human creativity changes the landscape in five years. It's not a century of evolution. It's five years, yeah, and the world yeah. looks really different.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. That's one of the key lessons of the frackers, how things change and how the experts, time and time again, get it wrong. And it's really up to the entrepreneurial risk-takers, the creative innovators,
0: uh, who can still make a change and make a difference. My guest today has been Gregory Zuckerman. His book is The Frackers: The Outrageous Inside Story of the New Billionaire Wildcatters. Greg, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Oh, it was a lot of fun.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.